Welcome to this week's edition of Flashback Friday, your opportunity to get some good review by listening to episodes from the past that Jason has handpicked to help you today in the present and propel you into the future. Enjoy. This show is produced by the Hartman Media Company. For more information and links to all our great podcasts, visit HartmanMedia.com. Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show with Jason Hartman. You're about to learn a new slant on investing, some exciting techniques, and fresh new approaches to the world's most historically proven asset class that will enable you to create more wealth and freedom than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine, self-made multimillionaire who's actually been there and done it. He's a successful investor, lender, developer, and entrepreneur who's owned properties in 11 states, had hundreds of tenants and been involved in thousands of real estate transactions. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to your financial independence day. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. One of the unique strategies I implemented a few years ago fit with my 10 commandments of successful investing, especially number eight, thou shalt borrow to accelerate wealth and reduce risk. And number 10, thou shalt only invest in tax-favored assets. So my money grows tax-free and I can leverage down payments. My friend Pat Donahoe's team at Paradigm Life got me started and I have a few accounts with them now. Check out this perpetual wealth strategy at beyourbank.com. Welcome listeners from around the world, from 164 countries around the world. This is your host, Jason Hartman, with episode 922-922. And today I have a returning guest. He was on several years ago when I knew him in the early days when he was attending college at ASU. And that is Mr. Cody Mamone, now a vice president in the commercial and institutional banking side at PNC Bank, living in New York City. Cody, welcome back. How are you? Hey, Jason. Great to be on the show again. It's been too long. Yeah, yeah. It's It's been great following your career path. Congratulations on your success and uh, your recent oh, move you. to New York City. And uh, and you've got a VP position at the ripe old age of, well, below 30. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll just keep it there. We'll keep it broad. Good but, stuff. But uh, yeah, thanks. It's been, uh, it's been quite the move in a year so far in terms of uh, transition, but yeah. it's been for the better. Yeah, good. Good for you. Talk to us a little bit about what's going on in the economy. We're going to cover uh, kind of consumer sentiment, unemployment, consumer debt levels. We're going to talk about cryptocurrencies a bit and the absolute nutty, crazy mob mentality going on there. There's a lot going on in the world. The unemployment rate is down to about 4%. So by all indications from the outside, at least, from the mainstream media, it would look like the economy is on fire, like it's doing great. What are your thoughts? So there's a lot of different positive economic factors that have been you know, encouraging the equity markets to rally to all-time highs this year. Even at that pace, bonds and uh, fixed income prices still haven't sold off to normal pace that you would you know assume with that sort of inverse price action. But for the most part, think the macroeconomic factors like the labor statistic that came out on Friday in terms of the unemployment rate being at a almost 10-year low, uh, right around 4.1%, I think it came in at. Things like that uh, are definitely on the forefront of the you know economic focus. Federal Reserve you know, started cutting down its balance sheet 
at a slow but substantial pace over the next quarter or so. There's a lot of positives that have been built and reinforced in terms of the tax plan that just got passed within the Senate. So I think there's a lot of things that have materialized that people thought that weren't going to this year with the new Trump administration coming in. So even though those were sort of factored in initially after he won the election last year, a lot of those materializations that just happened definitely propelled uh, equity prices to all-time highs and then a lot of subsequent related assets along with those. So in terms of you know overall economic health, I think there's still opportunity and some concern even for 2018 there on after. Good stuff. So Cody, uh, you sent me this article uh, from JP Morgan Chase about the difference between saving and savings, which is uh, an interesting distinction. The subtitle, the current household savings rate or saving rate, I'm going to be clear, is the lowest on record at 3.1%. But that doesn't mean consumers aren't thinking about the future. In fact, this low savings rate may be a sign of household financial strength. Most people would differ with that. What are your thoughts about this? Yeah, so saving versus savings. Basically, there's a differentiator between how much consumers able to save, you know, on a monthly or biweekly basis, you know, given their income levels, and then how much they have in overall savings as part of their, you know, personal balance sheet. So historically we've seen about eight and a half percent of consumer income being classified as their savings on a biweekly or monthly basis, you know, however they choose to budget it. In this case it's eight and a half percent monthly, but of recent years it's come down to about three point one percent. So almost a third of that is decreased. So it's a significant deterioration in terms of a quote unquote savings rate from the consumer. But if you closely examine the financial position consumers in terms of their balance sheet, which you can see higher overall FICO scores across the spectrum, in this perspective to be classified as a improving credit quality overall. So savings versus saving. If you look at it in a different context, there's a lot more spending going on in terms of capital goods being spent on rather than being deployed into uh, savings for consumers. So The amount of money Americans have set aside for future growth has grown about 10% annually since World War II. That steady growth of savings over decades, it's pretty much crucial in terms of financial planning, and it hasn't changed significantly. So even though Americans may be saving a smaller amount of every paycheck, the total amount of money being put away for their future has continued to climb. So there's an alternative measure that some economic forecasters and analysts sort of look at is the deferred compensation method. So when a lot of people think of savings, they think of the headline savings rate, which is determined basically by subtracting your spending from your income. And by that definition, a lot of households are saving less of their paychecks, but it's more of a limited view. So if you look at a broader viewpoint, you can take into account things like durable goods. So durable goods, think of, you know, washer, dryer, major appliance, like a refrigerator, even all the way up to higher dollar valued items like a car consumers are spending their current income on significant amounts of more capital expenditures, you know, like these durable goods. Right. And those durable goods, obviously, as the name would imply, they're durable. So they last a long time. But, you know, they may last a long time. (laughs) However, people just replace them because everything just keeps getting so much better from a technological perspective that people will just buy a new one. I mean, look at how high tech these refrigerators are getting. It's mind boggling uh, what refrigerators are starting to do. But every appliance really, you know, in the world 
world of the Internet of Things and these connected devices. It's pretty interesting. Uh, you know, Moore's Law may well be, uh, <laughs> uh, may need to be sped up a bit, given the uh, that old metric that 18 months and power of a processor doubling and so forth. This is not a concern then. Is that the overall view of this, that a, the lowest on record savings rate of 3.1% is not a concern? At least through this sort of objective lens, you know, this economist, his name, Jim Glassman, he's the uh, head economist of uh, commercial banking over there at J.P. Morgan. So, I mean, within his opinion, which is, you know, an interesting perspective that a lot of people don't take into account durable goods and personal capital expenditures in terms of household spending versus savings. But you can also categorize it as a long-term sort of savings deployment of capital, you know, from income. That is one way to look at it. But I think... There's other factors that I'd like to get into here in terms of, you know, hard data from the Federal Reserve that they keep track of uh, in terms of consumer credit and the smorgasbord, uh, for lack of a better term, of, you know, online personal lending that's taken place and mm-hmm. sort of accelerated, you know, as uh, mortgage securities and other uh, investment vehicles for yield that people would invest in, you know, both institutionally and on the consumer level has slowed down since the financial crisis. So getting back to that, looking at uh, the Board of Governors Federal Reserve data, they keep track of it. I know you hate the Fed and have a very strong opinion on their uh, monetary policy and guidance. And It's a scam. We, we all know that, but it, it is what it is. Yeah, We've got, uh, as I always say, just align your interests with the powers that be. Don't necessarily try and fight them. That's the way to work within the system. So uh, regardless of my opinion about hating the Fed, uh, sure, go right ahead. What no, but yeah. Doing? So in addition to obviously monetary policy, they do wide variety of other things that the central bank you know, functions the best at. So one of those things is keeping track of hard economic data that all of their uh, member banks provide. So being the largest and smallest uh, you know, consumer and corporate banks within the United States. So looking at some of the data they provide in terms of consumer credit, one thing that stuck out over the last quarter is the amount of revolving outstanding consumer credit. It's ballooned just over a trillion dollars for the first time ever. So we're at one trillion, three million dollars as of Q3. Now, this is consumer debt, not including student loans, though, right? Because that's already at about a trillion, too, which is insane. This is just... <laughs> yeah, this is just revolving. So right. think of any type of uh, revolving credit product from a credit card to a personal line of credit to sort of hybrid products that are out there that, you know, allow uh, flexible uh, principal repayments in terms where things aren't fixed mm-hmm. in nature. Yeah, so it. they can be perpetually carried on. For example, you know, your credit card can be carried on perpetually for about 20 years or so from the bank's perspective of lending money to wow, a consumer. Wow, that's just so. in- insane. It's absolutely insane. Yeah, okay. uh, yeah, it's, it's not. 20 years of credit card debt for the thing you bought 20 years ago that will be absolutely useless uh, by then and have no economic value. Yeah, you could still be paying for yeah, it. Yeah, despite your thoughts on uh, financial reform from 2008, and there's been some scrutiny as of late over the CFPB or mm-hmm. Consumer Financial Protections Bureau that was right. formed. Sure. They did have, have some uh, material impact on... Uh, disclaimers that were included with, you know, credit card applications and, you know, the larger font in terms of stating that, you know, you do have up to 20 years to basically pay this, but you will be basically obligated to give your firstborn and then some in terms of interest payments. So, <laughs> so yeah, just touching over different credit statistics across the consumer balance sheet. So revolving credit being just over a trillion dollars, credit card receivables and securitizations, you know, at all time record highs. 
non-revolving consumer credit at $2.7 trillion, which would include $1.4 trillion, almost $1.5 trillion by the end of the year estimated student loan balances for consumers. It's just you know, an outstanding $3.8 billion or so in terms of overall consumer credit outstanding, not including mortgages. So basically everything excluding mortgages uh, is about $3.8 billion or $3.8 trillion, excuse me. It's hard to even fathom. It's a giant but, number, no matter what. Definitely a giant but number. Even at uh, the end of 2012, we only ended at $2.9 trillion as a economy in terms of overall consumer credit outstanding. So to expand that almost 30% in the last five years or so, it's pretty astonishing. If you look at wage growth, I mean, where's the wage growth been? There's been on average for the past five years, one and a half to at best 3% on a given year in terms of consumer wage growth. So, you know, I ask you and the question uh, for all of your listeners is, that differential or delta between that explosion in credit across the balance sheet and leverage per se, where's that excess funding going to come from on in terms of the income line item to fund all of those extra interest payments and you know all of that extra credit? So there's a massive expansion in the uh, credit markets at the consumer level, and that's being exacerbated by all of the online and peer-to-peer lending options that have come into play as of late for either consolidations, personal loans. You have banks, large as Goldman Sachs, getting in with their new Marcus product in terms of consumer lending. So there's you know no shortage of options. What, what's the Marcus consumers. product? Yeah, that's basically an online lending platform. They're direct to consumer uh, online bank, if you will, where personal loans and online savings products are now available through the bank, just like a lot of the other banks uh, have historically provided uh, consumer you know, lines of credit and so forth. But it's new for them to provide it? Is that what you're saying? Correct. Yeah, to get into the consumer game, that was a uh, big step forward for them. They acquired a GE Commercial Bank's right. uh, portfolio a few years ago. In terms of their savings product, then they just relaunched their uh, overall platform as Marcus. So they're competing with all of the majors like Lending Club, Prosper Marketplace uh-huh. for online lending and peer-to-peer loans. I think this peer-to-peer stuff is quite fascinating. And I think when you combine that, this might be a good transition to talk about cryptocurrencies a bit. And, and maybe we can talk about interest rates after that a little more yeah. and wrap it up. Yeah, but good. it's interesting. I had dinner with a friend last night who's big into the cryptocurrency stuff. And I think this is just tulip bulb mania. It is psychotic what is going on. Right now. Oh, it's sickening. It's, it's sickening. It's almost sickening. You can smell the disappointment already, but you just don't know when it's coming. There will be blood in the streets of people that lose their money in this casino like you cannot possibly imagine. It is going to be devastating to people who have just been gambling. They're totally gambling. As I've said before, when it comes to Bitcoin or any other alternative currency, I would love to be wrong about this, but I'm not going to be wrong. We will see how long it will go, how big the bubble will blow. But if this were really something being used as a currency rather than a speculative vehicle, I would be a believer. But it's not. Okay, uh, so there's you can, no one using it. You, you can there's buy, no you can buy things on Overstock. I think Expedia takes it now. But there's no real market for using this as an actual currency. It's just not happening. So what you see here is an absolute speculative frenzy. It's beyond ridiculous. It is so dangerous. And uh, maybe that's the reason they all shut it down, the powers that be, because they certainly don't want a competitor for their product. Remember, every government and central bank's main product 
is currency. That is their primary widget that they sell. Your thoughts, Cody? Yeah, I absolutely agree. And it's just crazy because when I was on the show back in, I think it was 2013, in the springtime, uh, we were going over the same topic briefly in terms of, you know, a comparison to the uh, tulip bubble that, you know, every pundit around the internet likes to use as a uh, metaphor for the uh, bubble in uh, Bitcoin. But, you know, it was trading about 800 or so per US dollar back then. Now we're talking 18 to 20,000, which was obviously unforeseeable, but just beyond ridiculous. And it's just a matter of being at $250 billion of market cap now. How long does it take to? go back down to its real value, which no one knows because it's not backed by any type of real tangible type of government that any of the G10 or global 10. Anybody can come out with a new cryptocurrency tomorrow. There's already a bunch of them. they're not backed by anything material. You know what's mind boggling to me is that the environmental destruction that is taking place with Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. So folks, this is mind-boggling. It is what I think it was Joseph Schumpeter, I mentioned it before, The Economist, uh, who talked brilliantly about the concept of creative destruction. He also talked, and I believe it was him, possibly a wrong attribution, but fake work. And Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency is fake work. Literally nothing is being accomplished here by pushing... Fake elect- work is the new fake news. Yeah, right, exactly. You're pushing electrons around, having computers solve mathematical equations to mine coins or to populate the blockchain with a transaction. And it's shocking. Cody, you sent me a thing the other day about how much energy, how much electricity it takes, and you were in the energy business when you were with the oil company, to create one Bitcoin transaction. This is such yeah, so when you look, a disaster. When you look- Look at all the power consumption. Essentially, you're running a network, you know, personal servers and video cards when you really break it down with a micro level. And all of these video cards consume, you know, extreme amounts of power. And so when you're running all of these on a 24-7 basis and, you know, prices keep exploding and create more incentive for people to mine Bitcoin and more servers keep coming online, it's sort of self-fulfilling in terms of that capital deployment circle. It's expanded to, I forget what the source was, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal they published something, but it's essentially uh, the similar power consumption to the country of Denmark's output right now, just in terms of power needed to power the Bitcoin transaction network right now. It's just this you know, is, out of control. This I mean, is we're, absolutely we're mind-boggling. Environmentalists trying to stop, and we're all the protesters right now, protesting you know, environmentalism. For this. You know what I bet is happening is that the power companies are behind this <laughs> because they're making they a fortune all, off of it. They, they might be. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's absolutely totally beyond mind-boggling. Something that, you know, rarely see uh, analyzed in terms of, you know, cryptocurrencies, how much power it takes. I mean, when you look at how much power it takes for the U.S. Mint to print a uh, pallet of $100 bills or pallet of even pennies, which are worthless, but off-topic subject, it's like not even comparable, but the backing and monetary value of one versus the other. How, how can you say one's worth 18,000 US dollars with no central backing or no daily type of exchange among peers that you see within US dollars? I mean, there's no one exchanging Bitcoin 
peer to peer, let alone consumer to business or vice versa. So okay, I, so so what's coming though? This is the big deal. Are we going to see increased vol? I mean, the volatility is insane. It's insane amount of volatility. Now, are we going to see an increase in that because these will be traded now on two exchanges, I believe, in Chicago, right? Correct. So 3.40 p.m. Eastern time right now, in about two and a half hours, the first live products getting rolled out on the Chicago Board Options Exchange or CBOE. So they're one of the three major futures exchanges here in the United States. So they launched the first Bitcoin related product, which is a derivative product called a futures contract. So just for your listeners to get some background, a futures product is basically a contract stating that you believe the price will be at a certain level at a certain future point in time to be settled for either a physical product or cash settled, meaning it's just settled for just straight US dollars in this case. So Bitcoin's going to be, you know, cash settled and the CBOE product that's launching today for the first time, it's going to enable any type of speculator to come into the market and voice their opinion on a long or short position. Right, and it ha you haven't been able to short it so far, right? You can only go long. Correct, because when you're shorting something, you essentially have to borrow the physical asset from another person that's willing to lend it to you temporarily for you to either deliver it back to them at a certain price or to exchange it at a future time for a different value with another counterparty. But like shorting stock, for example, you know, you're basically borrowing it from something called the DTCC, which is the central house for, you know, stocks in the United States where all of the uh, brokerage firms clear through. Mm -hmm. But in this case, you're going through the derivatives exchange, which is the clearinghouse. So the clearinghouse is there for solely one purpose to manage risk among counterparties. So the way they do that is you have to put up initial margin. So initial margin would be your capital of about 30% or so in this case to go long or short one of these Bitcoin futures contracts. Mm -hmm. So what does this mean? Does this mean we're going to see a more accurate pricing of this fake currency, which, you know, you can argue all day, the dollar is a fake currency, and I've done it many times. And I, you know, I agree. The difference is, though, the dollar has the rule of law and the largest military in human history behind it, and a giant history and in infrastructure. Bitcoin doesn't. So, um, but as, you know, well, yeah, just yeah. To add real quick, as you always say, compared to what? Yeah, with the US dollar, you're able to say, well, the US dollar compared to what? You're comparing it across the G10 currency basket. So the yen, the Swiss franc, the euro, the pound, you know, all of these, you know, universally acceptable currencies that all have their own military, central banks, hundreds of years behind them, just the most infrastructure you could ever need already built in that's already developed. When you say compared to what in terms of Bitcoin, it's not comparable to anything which really puts it on a little island in the South Pacific <laughs> in terms of comparability. So that creates its own set of challenges just from a logistical standpoint in terms of ease of use. But in terms of risk, it's just unquantifiable right now. It's just unlimited. So I think the opportunity to go short at a moment's will through these new futures conduits that the uh, clearinghouses are going to provide, uh, it's going to create more volatility. It's going to create more opportunity for the currency to organically correct itself where it needs to be compared to nominally compared to through all like the peer-to-peer uh, -peer platforms. So uh, Coinbase, all of the 
infrastructure uh, that you can go on online, online and buy, you know, Bitcoin, your virtual wallets, they're all compared to a U.S. dollar denomination. So I think it'll help correct it back down to where it should be comparatively to the U.S. dollar long term. Okay, so your prediction, I mean, this volatility goes down, real sensible pricing comes into play, or this just attracts more speculation and volatility increases. I don't know. You know, it could go either way. It creates a two-sided market, I think is the most important takeaway. Right. I, I agree with that. Products. But what does the that mean? To, what does that mean to the price and the stability? It's going to be unstable for the foreseeable future, I think, until a lot of the uh, larger legacy players that have held on to and supported Bitcoin longer term uh, sort of take their feet out of the market and sort of liquidate their holdings. At the end of the day, I think if you see a lot of that transpire, then a lot of the smaller retail level activity will start to dissipate and people will step back and sort of evaluate things more closely. But you don't just go from 10,000 to 15,000, you know, within a couple day period and not have a bubble on your hands. It's yeah, just... it's, it's absolutely nuts. It's psychotic. Okay, interest rates. Interest rates are hard to predict, obviously, very hard to predict. One of the toughest things of all, because, you know, of course, it's not a natural market. It's been a lot easier compared to the prior central bankers with the Fed. So if you look at Ben Bernanke, just his language and dialogue around you know, Fed projections from 2008 through his tenure, I think that ended 2011 or 2012, was very, very difficult to sort of articulate where they were going and what the strategy was behind the Fed, their balance sheet, their interest rate strategy. Janet Yellen came on and she's been a lot more transparent with the public and financial markets in terms of what they're willing to do, what their targets and emphasis is on with macroeconomic data influencing their decisions both short-term and longer-term. So it's been a lot easier, I will say, to predict and anticipate what the Fed will be doing three months out versus 12 months out than the last central bankers being Bernanke and then even Greenspan before. So Cody, an amazing chart from John Burns, a real estate consulting. He's speaking at our upcoming Meet the Masters event on interest rate sensitivity in terms of mortgage qualification. This is going to blow your mind and everybody's mind. And I think it bodes well for the strengthening of the rental market in the future. So I'll share that in a moment. But overall, your thoughts are we're going to see higher rates in the future. Would that be correct? Yeah, I would agree with that. So you're looking at a 10-year treasury bond right now of about 2.4%, call it. You know, Historically, we've seen that over the last 10 years, closer to 5% or so. And then even the 30 years, only about 40 basis points above where the 10 years at right now at 2.8%. So to go from 10 years of maturity all the way out another 20 years for an extra 40 basis points, it's just way too flat in my opinion. So I think that you're going to have a widening curve at the very least in 2018 where the spreads materially widen across the different maturity lengths for interest rates. And then also rates themselves will rise just given the levels of economic positivity that keep rolling out. And that's foreseeable in my opinion and very much achievable with the new administration. So I think you'll probably get another two, maybe three, if you want a bonus rate hike uh, in 2018, one in the spring, one in the fall, call it right around 25 or 30 basis points a piece. So the end of 2018, you know, my forecast would be right around two, 2.25% in terms of 
federal funds estimates for the next year. Okay, well, let me let me wrap it up with this. So I always talk about the three dimensions of real estate, which there's really more than three dimensions, but that's a catchy name. So we'll leave it at that. Now, this chart is about interest rate sensitivity in terms of qualifying for mortgages. So it basically, it's shocking. Okay, it says if rates continue to rise, more will be forced to rent. A 1% increase in mortgage rate would disqualify 5 million households from owning a $200,000 home. So 1% increase, 5 million households owning a $200,000 home. If interest rates move higher, millions of potential single-family home buyers will be unable to qualify for a mortgage based on current income levels and will likely rent. We expect rates to hit 4.9% by 2020. Now, they're, at the time of this chart, they're quoting the rate at 3.9%. Now, remember, folks, this is not for investment property. Investment property, non-owner-occupied rates are higher than owner-occupied rates. So we're talking about owner-occupied rates here. But a $200,000 mortgage, you heard that. A $400,000 mortgage, a $600,000 mortgage, it's pretty much the same path. The number of households who can qualify now are about 80 million, okay, for a $200,000 mortgage, about 50 million for a $400,000 mortgage, just under 30 million for a $600,000 mortgage. But when those rates rise, it is mind-boggling how the qualification levels drop. You just see people just left out of the housing market. And I mean, rates have been artificially low for so long. This ultimately has to happen. I always... Absolutely. And that's where it comes back full circle to that point we originally touched on in consumer balance sheets of those suppressed wage growth numbers that we've seen over the last few years, but that explosion in consumer credit. So when you're looking at underwriting a mortgage, one of the characteristics in the five C's of credit is capacity. They don't have that capacity right now at these artificially low rates, let alone normalized rates if they were to increase. So that definitely speaks to that point. Yeah, no, it's it's no question about it. So I talk about how the, over the next 10 years, there are amazing demographics coming at rental housing, but there's also amazing economics coming at rental housing. So the three dimensions of real estate, if you're unfamiliar with that listening to this, go to jasonhartman.com and just type in three dimensions of real estate. Also go to jasonhartman.com slash masters and join us for our upcoming Meet the Masters event. And Cody, thank you for joining us again. Do you want to give out a website or anything? Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me again. You can visit all of our you know, economic data through the bank, through PNC's website, basically just pnc.com and search uh, insights under uh, corporate and institutional and you can view all of our economic insights through the bank. Uh, you can also reach me personally through my website, C aaron.com if you want to come into contact personally. So Excellent. Good stuff. Thanks for joining us. Happy investing, everybody. All right. Thanks, Jason. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. Be sure to check out the show's specific website and our general website, hartmanmedia.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Remember that guest opinions are their own. And if you require specific legal or tax advice or advice in any other specialized area, please consult an appropriate professional. And we also very much appreciate you reviewing the show. Please go 
go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or whatever platform you're using and write a review for the show. We would very much appreciate that. And be sure to make it official and subscribe so you do not miss any episodes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Thank you.